As you're seated, please open to Genesis chapter 3. We continue our study in Genesis together and, oh, chapter 3. <laughs> oh, chapter 3 of Genesis. Beginning with verse 1, we read together now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Oh, Father, after reading all the goodness from your word, all of the blessing, all of the provision, Lord, how you cared for mankind, how you made us, how you gave us everything in the garden. Father, how good you are still. Lord, mankind turned our back on you. <clears throat> Father, this is a difficult passage to read. This is a difficult passage to study together because, God, it's so full of cursing and sin and rebellion. But, God, I pray that this would impact us. Father, that this would help us and teach us to learn why we need Jesus and why he is so precious. Why, he is such an amazing, gracious, loving Savior. We praise you for that truth. We praise you for Jesus, our Savior, in his name. Amen. Well, this is the big turning point in Scripture. There are certain huge moments in Scripture. All of Scripture is important, but some of them are just bigger than others. You think about if you, were going to, if you were going to divide Scripture into just four pieces, you'd have creation, which we were just blessed 
to read about and to study, you would have the fall, which is what we're covering this morning, and then the fixing of it, the redemption that Jesus brought in His life, death, resurrection, and the, resurre- the restoration of everything back to the way God intended. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and everything in between is, is because of the fall. But more than that, because of the coming redemption. If the biggest story of the Scriptures is Jesus Christ and, and His redemption, and it is, then the Old Testament is the preparation for that. The Gospels are the manifestation. Acts is the propagation. The epistles are the explanation. And Revelation is the consummation of it all. But this is the answer to the question of what is wrong with everything? What happened to this world? How come things are not the way that they were in Genesis 1 and 2? Why is there sickness? Why are there weeds? Why is there hurt and pain? Why is there suffering? Why do husbands and wives fight and not get along? Why do kids, why do children, toddlers throw temper tantrums? Why do people do things that hurt other people? Why do people hurt animals and why do animals hurt people? Why is there all of this stuff? Why don't we love this Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, this awesome, good, amazing, wise God who carefully crafted us in His own image? Why don't we love Him? Why don't we love others? After answering the first questions, how did we get here and how did everything else get here, now we're learning why it's all broken. And there's so much here. I encourage you, please study these verses together in your koinonia groups, together with your families. We're going to study all of this this morning, and um, you'll notice on your notes, if you have the outline, <laughs> we've, we've had simple outlines, we've had um, just, just um, simplicity, we've had beauty in the Lord's creation. Now this week, we have a mess on our outline, don't we? <laughs> uh, I was already asked by someone, this, this looks like it's uh, a little bit more than, than normal. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. It messes things up. It complicates things. Um, So it's reflected there in your notes, but hopefully what's in your notes is also beneficial and helpful to teaching us. The world's answer to what is wrong all around us is uh, the prevailing notion for the culture around us is, well, nothing is wrong. It was all a cosmic accident. It all came about by pure chance or fate, and so there's nothing that's wrong. That's just the way it is. We should even be glad that we're here um, but glad to whom? Well, just uh, to fate, I guess, or to, to evolution. There, there's nothing that's, there, there's no standard for what it was supposed to be like. There's no ultimate plan or, or guide. It just is what it is. And everything really happened as the result of the violence of evolution. There was death, and there was life after that, and there was more death, and, and it was a, a violent process of evolution. There's no original goodness of God. That theory would have us believe we've been riding a wave upward to progress to where we are now, that, that we've progressed from single-celled organisms, from nothing into single-celled, and, and then onto the more complex forms of life like ourselves, but really, it's going up. It's all going the right direction, or the direction that nothing would have us to go. But for us, there is now instinct, there is DNA, there's experience, and that's what shapes us and molds us, and everything would be fine except for the pesky ideas of what's right and what's wrong that we can't seem to agree on where that comes from, and we don't know what to do about it, and we're certainly not going to ask God and His Word. That's, that's what the culture would reject. But God knows better. God knows best, and He tells us how the man and the woman in the beginning that we come to know later as Adam and Eve go from being covered with God's grace and blessing and life to them being covered with death and sin. We've said it before, we cannot overstate the goodness of God. We also cannot overstate our sinfulness before God. And this tells us why, how this happened. As I studied this week, that there were moments where I was tense and my stomach was just, it was upset, it was sickened. It's breaking before God to read these verses. I mean, for the last few weeks, we've been rejoicing in all of God's goodness and, and all of His blessing and His life and His spotless creation. There was the complete picture and timing in chapter 1. There was filling in more details in chapter 2, and it was so, uh, so much of a heightening of the excellence of God's purity in his creation, and this is where it's just so crushingly, heartbreakingly broken. 
the guilt of sin. This God, this Lord God, this this personal, living, loving God, the holy and good God, reveals himself in creation here. As we study this together, we're struck by the apparent immediacy of it. We're struck by how quickly this happened. Now, the Bible doesn't say how long the man and the woman lived in the garden before this happened. But it also doesn't really give us the impression that it took a whole lot of time either. (laughs) Um, We know that the man could not have sinned on day six of creation because at the end of that day, God saw that everything that he had made was very good. And many people don't like to say that uh, Adam and Eve fell on the seventh day because God set that part, that day aside. He, He sanctified that, made it holy. Um, but I can't think of a better day for Satan to attack than that seventh day, the day that the Lord set aside for his purposes and for praising him on the, day, on the very day they're supposed to be praising him, the day that we're later told, do not work, do not do your normal work, but just worship God. I can't, I can't think of a better day for Satan to attack than that day. We know that this act of disobedience was their first. This was the first sin that's described here. But it would have been disobedience not to begin multiplying and filling the earth. So um, chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that when Adam and Eve are taken out of the garden, they conceive and bear a son, Cain. And so that happens after the garden. So uh, if they had paused or waited to begin obeying God in the garden, well, that would have been the first sin. But this actually took place before that even happened. So it, it, it must have been fairly rapid that this happened. Plus, there are no other days mentioned. You know, in Genesis 1, you've got on day 1, there was this. And then on day 2, there was this. And all the way through day 6, and then the seventh day, it's set aside, and, and then this happens. There's no break. So no later than day 8, but I believe that this could have happened on day 7. I mean, the day after they were born, (laughs) that they were created. So it's not a significant amount of time before the fall happens, but it is significant how stunningly fast and how rapidly everything changes because of this. So let's begin studying this together. Let's learn in two simple sections. The first section is Roman numeral one in your notes. It is sin committed in verses one through seven. Sin committed. A new character appears in the garden. That is the serpent. And What do we know about the serpent? Well... We know that the Lord God made the serpent. That's what verse 1 tells us. The good, powerful, wise, perfect God created the serpent. It was a created creature. Now, why are we belaboring that point? Well, because this was not a representation of evil. This was not a symbol. Uh, This was not evil incarnate, as if evil took a form and, and started to do battle in the garden. God created this creature, but it was a very wise creature. The word for crafty here, when it's in a positive sense, means um, wise. It means knowing where the traps are and being careful to steer clear of the traps. In a negative sense, it's knowing where the traps are and leading you right to them. (laughs) That's this word, a clever, a crafty, knowing the careful way. And so the serpent's cleverness can be used, could be used for either good or for bad. And in just a minute, the serpent is going to speak, which is not characteristic of serpents, as we know. And later on, when God addresses the serpent after the fall, the content of God's message goes far beyond that of a snake. And so there's something else here behind the serpent or within the serpent that uses the serpent's clever craftiness for his own purposes. At this point, that's all we know. That's all that we know. Now, serpent here in the first book of the Bible is not unmasked clearly until the last book of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 12, where we find out the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's not, we don't find out from from God's word that this was Satan behind the serpent until Revelation 12, and then it's repeated in chapter 20. But Jesus alluded to the fact that Satan was here in the garden, in the serpent, or, or behind the serpent in John eight forty four, when he called him the devil, and that he was a murderer from the beginning, and a liar, and, a, and the father of lies. Jesus said he was there in the beginning. 
Now, we can't fully get into all of the reasons. We don't have time this morning to go to Ezekiel 28, but I believe that Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19 describe the fall of the angel that was in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the angel was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The angel was blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. He sinned and God cast him out. And so that must have happened either just before this or at this time. But that's why he doesn't come as a little red devil figure with pointy horns and a tail and a pitchfork and, you know, come up and, and try to tempt them that way. He was a beautiful angel. Uh, some believe Isaiah chapter 14 is more information about Satan and his fall. It's not quite as clear it could be, but um, again, those verses are in your notes. You can study those in your groups. What we need to keep in mind is that God doesn't spend a lot of time describing the serpent or who's behind the serpent or what's happening there. He spends a lot of time teaching us about himself because he's the one that we need to keep our eyes on. He's the one that's the good one, the, the great one, the glorious one. God, in every story in the Scriptures, God is always the hero. God is always the point, the main character in the Scriptures. The Lord God, Yahweh God, is the one that we need to keep our preoccupation set on, our, our eyes on, not Satan. Um, even here in Genesis, the serpent is not the main figure. He plays a part, but he's not the focus. There's no long explanation of who he, who he is or where he came from. Or it's just the relation of here's what happened. The story itself is key. The man and the woman are responsible for their choice, for their sin. And they're going to try to say the devil made me do it, but that excuse will not fly. We are responsible agents, morally responsible before God. And so this serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve, and that's his role in and that's what we will see him continue to be throughout the Scriptures and in our lives. Later, this, uh, Satan will tempt Job, and he'll be less successful. Later, he'll tempt Jesus, and he'll fail miserably. Praise God. But he's going to tempt us, too. Now, as he comes in the form of the serpent, and as he tempts Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, we learn a lot about temptation in these verses and that's really the major point, how sin came into God's creation. Because the way that the serpent is used to bring sin into creation is the way that we still have sin brought into our lives today. There's more time in the dialogue of temptation and, and leading up to the temptation than there is in, in the actual sin itself. Did you notice that? That the sin itself takes up seven words in English for the woman and all of three words for the man. The focus is on how sin came into the world through them, how it started on the inside before it finally came out on the outside. And that's what we're going to be learning about. Because it's not only teaching how sin came in and how it ruined everything, it also teaches us what to watch for. The words of 2 Corinthians 2 hold true that we are not outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his designs. His whole plan of attack is laid out here in chapter 3 of Genesis. And he doesn't, he doesn't use all of these steps every single time. And they may be a different order, but he's going to use these same tactics to come at you to tempt you to sin. So this is the autopsy after the fact of, of examining what it was that brought sin into the world, how sin comes. So be awake, stay awake for this. How does temptation sin to sin work within each of us as human beings? How does it work? Even for us who are regenerated, who have been born again in Christ Jesus, here's the anatomy of temptation. A, in your notes, God's Word challenged in verses 1 through 5. God's Word is challenged in verses 1 through 5. As Satan comes, he's, he's going to challenge God's Word. That's where his focus will be. And in number one in your notes, first of all, God Himself will be degraded. God degraded in verse 1. That's what the serpent begins with. He brings God down to a level. Look how he refers to God. We've seen in chapters 2 and 3, Lord God, Yahweh God, this living, personal, loving, awesome, sovereign, providing God. We've seen it 20 times in these two chapters. The only time that it, Lord God, Yahweh God is not used is by the serpent here and Eve as she talks with him. He refuses to refer to God as that living, loving personal God. He says, did God actually say? He challenges God's authority and the woman's knowledge of God. What's so important about this God, right? 
Who is he to you? Is he the personal, living, all-powerful, all-wise, eternal, just, sovereign, unchanging God who is love, who is holy? Is he that Yahweh God, or is he just God? He's up there somewhere, but I don't know him. God has revealed himself clearly in his creation, but that knowledge is not enough. That's why he gave his word. He says, here's who I am, and, and, I'm, and I'm revealing myself to you in these commands that I'm giving you in my word. But brothers and sisters, we degrade God. We, we bring God down a level when all we know about him is, well, he, he's God. You know, what, what else do I know of him, and, and how much do I know him? Is he just God? The best way to fall for temptation is to not even know God. Just know about him, a little bit about him. Well, number two, God's word is distorted in verse one. God's word distorted. See, God is revealed in his word, and if his word is shown to be false, then God is shown to be false. The serpent asks, did God actually say this to you? <laughs> you guys can't eat of any tree in the garden? What the, what the serpent is doing is, is he's misleading with this question. He's distorting the word of God. And he's calling the woman to, hey, we're just having a simple conversation here, right? This isn't anything terrible. This is just, let's just sit down and talk. Let's just have a dialogue. But the reality of this, the engagement in this conversation is, let's, let's question God's goodness. Is God really all that good? I mean, he's not here now, right? Did he give you anything while he's away? His commands just seem so unreasonable, so unknowable. It's all too confusing. I can't keep it straight. Are, are you supposed to eat anything or just nothing or, or what is it, right? That, that's what he's doing. I, he's distorting God's word and he's bringing confusion where there is no confusion. What was God's command in verse 16 of chapter 2? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There is only one you cannot eat from. His command is full of blessing, and it couldn't be more clear. It's variety, and it's beauty, and it's fullness. But the serpent distorts it, and his target, his target is the heart of the woman, and he approaches through the mind. Just as we've talked about, the, the mind is the gateway to the heart. That's what Satan is after in the form of the servant. And he says, let's just think about this. Let's talk about this. Let's question the accuracy and the dependency of God's word. If you see this happening in your mind, you, you know, let's talk about God. Let's judge, let's judge what he says. Let's judge whether he's good or not. Do not engage in a conversation, no matter how small it seems, no matter how innocent it seems. We do not stand in judgment of God's word. His word judges us because God, as we've been learning, is the standard maker. God's the one who makes the rules. He's the, the boundary setter. And he's perfect and he's just in, and he's right in all of his ways. We submit to him as he reveals himself in his word. We, we don't get to judge him. Now, questions are okay. I want to make that clear. Like, if we're trying to understand, we need to ask questions. Questioning is okay. How do I understand this? How do, how do I make sense of that? Those are good. But these questions that the serpent is asking is not for curiosity, not to understand, it's to challenge. So he distorts God's word. He says, let's look at life through your own lens rather than through the lens that God has given you. And when you do that, brother and sister, when I do that, we will fall for temptation. Number three. God's word is doubted in verses 2 and 3. His, his, his word is doubted. As the woman engages in this conversation, we can see that the ploy is working. But it's working in a fertile mind that's already entertaining these thoughts. She's already got some thoughts going on in her mind. The serpent hasn't even gotten to her heart yet. He hasn't even gotten to the main part of the temptation. But already we start to hear in her reply, we hear some cracks in her thinking that she's doubting the goodness of God in his word. She makes three major changes to God's word in, in these verses. A, in your notes, she disparaged God's good provision. She disparaged God's good provision. Verse 2. The servant says, you can't eat from any tree? What her answer should have been is, oh no, we get to eat from every tree. <laughs> right? I mean, her answer should be, oh, you silly talking serpent fool. <laughs> God is good. He's given us everything except one tree over there. That's what she should have said. But the words of the woman here jump off the page. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
But it's not enough. It's not enough. God isn't giving us enough. Why? Because he's not giving us one. Which one? The one that's right in the middle. The one that's right in the middle that's the center. It's got to be the masterpiece of God. He's not letting us have that. That's the one I really want. And God's holding it back. He gave us all the other ones, but that's the one I want. Even more revealing, the woman uses the serpent's name for God. Oh, yeah, God. He's just God. Do you find yourself, brother, sister, man, woman, child, do you find yourself unsatisfied with what God has given to you? Your, your life probably doesn't have everything that you wished it would have, that you, everything that you wanted it to have. Things don't go the way you want them to. But do you disparage God's good provision in your life when you see that? That's what opens you to temptation. That's what leads you into sin. She disparages God's good provision. She says, he's, he's, not, he's not good. He hasn't given me enough. B, in verse 3, she overstated God's protective prohibition. She overstated his protective prohibition. God said, you shall not eat of it. But the woman overstates it. She goes far beyond. She says, we can't even touch it. That's how much God's holding it back. She emphasizes the negative command that she perceives as God holding her back from something. The focus for her is on her understanding of the command, not God's word, not God's command itself. I don't trust God as perfect provider and sustainer. We have a word for this. We call it legalism. This is, this is legalism, adding to God's commands. This is, this is one of the ways that legalism comes about. Why? Well, because it makes me feel better about myself. It, it makes God's commands into something that's just outward and that I can do, I can accomplish. I feel really good about myself. Instead of beginning on the inside with worship for God and, and love and adoration for God, I'll just take care of things on the outward side. That's what legalism does. But this is a way for temptation to take root. Even in the attempts to come up with ways to obey God, we can, we can mess that up. We can open ourselves up to temptation, to sin. Now, this idea could have come from the man or it could have been the woman's idea, but no matter where it came from, it was wrong to add to God's word. And it's wrong to focus in on what he says you can't do and, and what I've come up with that I can't do or that other people can't do. And if you find yourself standing in judgment of others because, well, he's doing those things that I would never do. Or she said that and I would never say that. If you're, if you're judging others because of the standard you're created, you've opened yourself up to this temptation to sin, as the woman did here. And you've opened up a, a, a division that can destroy unity in God's people. It leads to unforgiveness and pride and more. Well, see, the woman underrated God's certain promise. She underrated God's certain promise, verse 3. The promise here is that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It wasn't a threat because, again, the focus was you get all of this, but not that. But it was a certain promised warning. There will be no way out. Death will come. Dying, you shall die. The, the word day there in chapter 2, when God gave this, this prohibition and, and this promise, the, the word day meant time, just as it did in chapter 2, verse 4, not a 24-hour literal period, because again, it didn't have the ordinal numbers and it didn't have evening and morning. It meant in the time that this happens, you're sentenced to death. Now, what did the woman do with that promise? Well, she minimized it. She understated it and, and underrated it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The consequence could be dying. But she weakened it in her, in, in the consequences of sin in her mind weren't going to be that bad, right? They won't be as bad as God made them out to be. He's not even here to see it. We need to take the promises of God seriously, not just all the good ones that we like, but, but the hard ones, the negative ones. He promises that all people will be punished forever in hell because of our sin. We are responsible for our sin. And he promises that because he is a just God. He is a God of holiness, a God of justice, and he will carry out that sentence against all sinners, and we are all sinners. The wages of sin is death. Sin is not a joke. Sin is not something to laugh at. It's not something to be entertained by. It's not something to take lightly. There is no way out, it is certain, and that's why we have to stop for a second and just praise God for Jesus. 
praise God for our Savior who died in our place for us. He took that from us. But brother and sister, if we take sin lightly, we don't fight it. We're not putting it to death as we're told. We're not watching for it everywhere, especially from within. We are opening ourselves up to temptation and to sin. And so that's what Eve does in her response. She, she degrades, after, after degrading God, the serpent does that. After distorting God's word and after she's doubting his word, the next step is all too easy. Verse 4, God's word denied. Number 4 in your notes, God word, God's word denied. Now tragically, the serpent quotes God's word better than the woman did. The serpent didn't underrate God's word. He said it rightly, but then he flatly denied it in the emphatic position, no, you will not surely die. The effect here is, that's what he really said. That's what he said, do you believe it? Are you going to act on what God said? The serpent holds up God's actual words, and then he throws them on the ground and stomps on them. What are you going to do about it? She does nothing. God's word is trampled, and she stands by and listens. Can you do this? Brother and sister, can you take God's word and just deny it? Can you toss it to the side? I mean, I'll, I think I've shared this with you before, but I'll never forget the time I spent on the phone with a, with a woman who, who was, she was intentionally going to live in sin. And I was pleading, it's wrong, it's sinful, you're sinning against the Lord, not to mention against yourself and against Him and all of these ways, but you're sinning against God. She says, I know it's wrong, this is what I'm going to do. You have not opened yourself up to temptation and sin when you do that. You've given yourself over to it. You cannot deny God's word and expect to be safe. After denying it, what is it worth? What's it worth? That's what leads us to the final step. Number five, God's word dismissed. In in verse five, God's word is just dismissed. The serpent says to the woman, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What do you need God for, right? With these words, the serpent never speaks again. We never hear the serpent speak again. He rests his case. His job is complete. He said everything he needed to say. Now that you have no trust in the word of God, dismiss it. Discard it. Replace it with yourself. Your own eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Now, what does this even mean? (laughs) That's the genius of this temptation. You get to feel it all in yourself. You get to figure it out and decide for yourself. You don't need God's meanings. You don't need his definitions, his boundaries, his good commands. You don't need any of it. This is, you're the one. (laughs) You are the one. This is the height, the ultimate appeal to self-esteem. You can do it. You can figure it out. It's the ultimate appeal to follow your heart. You don't need God to tell you anything. You're able to see it for yourself. See it all, to know it all. You'll see just like God does. You'll be just like him. You don't need anything from God. And God knows all this. He's just holding it back from you. He's just been keeping you down from withholding wisdom and just making you weird. (laughs) Right? You've trusted him. Now trust me instead. You no longer desire or need God's word. You desire whatever that you want to desire. And you can get it. And you can get it your own way. That's what he's telling the woman. You can believe in anything you want to. You can believe in evolution. You can bring in, in, in human philosophies, in psychologies that, that comes from secular ideas. You can believe in UFOs, anything at all. You can get it. You can get it your way. Throw off the authority of God. Throw off the authority of your husband. Get away from the authority of the help of another believer. You know, that's what he does from us today, with us today. You're going to be tempted into sin, and one of the very first ways that he's going to do that is to tempt you to keep away from church. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to go to your koinonia group. Get away from other believers. You know, they're there to help you, (laughs) right? It's part of a larger strategy to keep you in sin and temptation. Just dismiss God's word and all that it says. You'll be fine without it. You'll be fine without his people. You'll be fine without any of that stuff. This is how God's word was challenged to bring about temptation and sin. This is, this is how it happens within us as well. It happened to her, and we're no different from her. She was, in fact, I mean, she was our best. <laughs> she and, and, and the man together were, were the best. 
The result is that sin is conceived within her and it comes out of her immediately. That's B in your notes, sin conceived in verse 6. Sin conceived. Now we'll go through this quickly, but she, was sin, she conceived sin autonomously. The words in verse 6 was, the woman saw for herself. She saw for herself what was good. She saw everything God had made. God said when he looked at everything, he said, it's very good. The woman said, well, I'm in charge of me. I don't need God. I don't need man. I'm independent. I'm autonomous. I will say what's good for me. When the woman saw that it was good, despite what God said. See, God didn't make us that way. We've talked about this. God didn't make us with the ability to figure out what's right and wrong and good and bad. He tells us in his word. We need to depend on him for that. But she desired this, so she made the decision herself. Practically is number two. She, practically, she said it's good for food. God had said in chapter 2, verse 9, that every other tree was good for food. Everything else was good for food, but she wanted this one for food. So she convinced herself that it was good. And this is the living picture of the desires of the flesh in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. This is loving all that is in the world rather than loving the Father. The love of the world replaces the love of the Father. So what does it consist of? Well, first, the desires of the flesh. She desired this for her flesh. This food will be good. This fruit will be good for food. And number three, she conceived sin because of the aesthetic desires of it. It was, it was aesthetically, aesthetically pleasing. It was a delight to the eyes. This is, in 1 John 2, 16, the desires or the lusts of the flesh, in her, in, in, of the eyes. In her eyes, the fruit was more desirable than all the beautiful fruit God had made. In chapter 2, verse 9, God made everything and it was a beautiful it was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Everything else was. But she says, no, this one. She rejected what God said. The word delight here means a craving, a desire, something that you would take pleasure in. I will get pleasure from this. What my eye sees. Look how good it looks. Surely there's nothing wrong with it. This is, this is temptation for us to sin. Look how pure it looks. Look how clean it looks. There, there can't be anything wrong with this. Just go along with it. It doesn't hurt to look. Have you heard that? <laughs> Number four, spiritually. It was desired to make one wise. The word desired is from the word for lust or the word to covet. And she went past the wanting phase. She said, she said, I want this, but now she's past that. She says, I will have this. I got to have this. I need this. I, I will have that. It's the pride of life from 1 John 2. This is the proud boastfulness of having what I want in life, not just possessions, but in this case, wisdom. I will have it, and I will get it, and I will get it my way, and I don't care what it costs. Wisdom, brothers and sisters, never comes from within. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate, Solomon wrote. Wisdom does not come from within. It doesn't come from the world the wisdom of the world is folly and foolishness to God, 1 Corinthians 3. So spiritually, then five, number five, physically. This is where it comes out. It comes out physically into the act of sinning. She took and she ate. James 1 spells out this progress. You're tempted to sin. How? Because you're lured in your mind. You're enticed in your affections by your own desires. It's pulling you. It's drawing you from within, pushing you and pulling you and doing everything it can to get you to sin. And when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. That's what James tells us. All of her desires led up to the sin. It started within. This woman was fully convinced that this was the right thing to do. She did not say, this is evil, this is bad, I'm going to do it. She said, this is good. This is the right thing to do. Temptation, brother and sister, will not come at you in that devil figure with the pointy horns and the pointed tail and the pitchfork. Her every faculty screamed at her to do this. This is the right thing to do. But it required a total rejection of God's goodness and His sovereignty and His wisdom. The woman takes the fruit and she eats, and as she does, she is now in open defiance of the Lord God but it didn't start that way. The whole thing seems to take place apparently right in front of the tree. She, she's apparently already looking at it. And the serpent comes up and has this conversation. And when she's convinced, 
she's there. She takes the fruit in every way she desired it already. If you can say, if you can say, I know God says this, but anything after that, <laughs> you're, you're falling for this temptation, this, this way of conceiving sin. You've already lost the battle if you can say, I know God says this, but... Number six, cooperatively, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She became the tempter for the man, except there was no persuading, there was no convincing, there was no deceiving. If you thought it was quick for the woman, if you thought it took a, a, you know, a minute or two for her to be able to eat because she, was conceived, because she was deceived, it didn't take any time for the man just to take it and eat it. In every way, he showed no care for her. He showed no responsibility to God for himself or for her that he was supposed to be caring for, for the garden, for dominion, for creation, for God's image. He willingly chose, the Bible tells us. He willingly chose to forsake all of the works that the Lord God, Yahweh God, had done for them. Again, it's so rapid, it's so tragic. In verse 7, number 3, the result is characterized. The result in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. They gained knowledge, but not wisdom. There was no wisdom, but it was knowledge. Their eyes were opened. The serpent was not wrong that their eyes would be opened, but he was dead wrong about them being like God. They could see good and evil. They knew it now. They were well acquainted with it, but it was because now they could see it from within. Oh, there's good and there's evil. There was good all around us. Now there's evil, and it's inside. They're ashamed. Be they are naked and exposed. They had been naked before, but they were not ashamed. Now they are ashamed and they're naked. They, they thought something wonderful was about to happen. Something terrible has happened. Now they don't have the wisdom they thought they were going to get, and they were no more like God now than they had been before. In fact, they've acted more like the serpent than God. See, they're covered, but not sufficiently. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. Now, a little bit of good news if you like figs or if you like fig newtons. Those were apparently in the spotless, pure, innocent Garden of Eden. So, okay, that was it. The bad news. Even though they still bear God's image, they're covering up God's image. They're covering up the sensitive parts with loincloths made of leaves, the parts that were made specifically for multiplying, for filling the earth, that was meant for obedience, they're covering it up. And they're using God's creation to do that. And the leaves, of course, we know are not sufficient. They're going to fade. They're going to wither. They're, going to, they're already dying, leaves that have been pulled off of a tree. Man's solutions for covering sin are never sufficient. Man's wisdom for what sin is is worthless. And, and our way of making up for it, we can't. All of this was how the man and the woman gave birth to sin. All of it led up to that, and then it happened. And it happened like that. It was a flash. Watch the progression. See the progression. Watch for it in your own life. You may not even need all those steps, like we said, but temptation to sin will not come in some new way. There's not a different word of God. There's not a different way of attacking. It can be repackaged. But if we will hold firm to God and to His word... Because of Jesus, we don't have to sin. Sin, notice that it spreads from, from the serpent to Eve to Adam to all mankind. It has a 100% infection rate, 100% death rate. That is why everything changed. That's what happened to bring sin and, 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 and problems and weeds and all that in the world. That's what the next section tells us, how did everything change. And we don't have a lot of time for these, so we will go through these um, quickly, but hopefully still helpfully. Section 2, Roman numeral 2, sin is confronted by God, verses 8 through 19. Sin is confronted. And this is where we learn what happened to, to, to make everything the way it is today. A, God calls to accountability in verses 8, 8 through 13. He calls to accountability. What is the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden? They heard that. They got to hear the Lord God, Yahweh God, walking in the garden. What does that sound like? We don't get to know because of sin. Rather than the exciting blessing of hearing God coming, the man and the woman hide themselves. 
you think God can't see you? Why are you hiding from this Lord God, Yahweh God? Because you've sinned against him, you've rebelled against him, and you've separated your relationship with him. You cannot separate yourself from God's presence. You will never be able to separate yourself from God's presence. Even in hell, the Lord tells us that he is there. We can never separate ourselves from God's presence, but we can separate, and sin has separated our relationship with him. You're cut off from that relationship. Now you have God's presence to call you to account for sin, and that's a terrifying place to be. In verse 9, God calls for the man, the responsible one. Where are you, man? Where are you, Adam? Not because God doesn't know, but God's saying, you need to be here where I am. It's a rhetorical question, not I don't know, it's come here, Adam. What would have been justice at this point is for God to line all three of them up and to destroy them right then. Just to execute them and destroy them and be done. But in his grace, in his mercy, God calls them to account. Notice three tragedies in the man's responses. Number one, in verse 10, the man's self-justification. The man's self-justification. I'm not coming to you because I shouldn't have to answer to you. I heard you, but I come first. Look at his answer. I, 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 myself. It wasn't even a real reason. He was naked before, but he says, I was naked, and so I was afraid. The problem was because of the sin, and now that's a problem. The big word that the man uses is the word fear. I was afraid. Why would you be afraid of the perfect provider God? He knows every bit of you and every part of you. He crafted you and formed you and made you the way that you are. Perfect love casts out fear, but self-justification before God rightly produces fear. Sin produces fear in us. If you have sinned and you feel afraid, feel that. Don't try to avoid it. Don't say, well, I'm I'm suffering from anxiety. I'm suffering from fear. I've got a phobia. No, this is godly sorrow over sin that leads to repentance, not something to shy away from. Don't find a way to hide it or, or to go around it. Don't try to hide from God. Feel that and cry out to God. Instead, the man continues in verses 11 through 12, the man's self-preservation. God says, who told you that? Where'd you get that information? It's either because somebody told you or because you ate from the tree that I told you not to eat from. The man says, I don't want either one of your options, God. He chooses again his own path and he complicates the answer. He says, God, it's your fault. You made this woman who's supposed to be my helper and she gave it to me. What else was I supposed to do? You gave me this woman. She gave me the fruit. Yeah, I ate it. Next, in verse 13, the man's selfish example. The Lord God, this Yahweh God, turns to the woman and demands an answer. What have you done? The woman follows the man's example for the first time in the passage. She follows his lead into blame. It's a softer blame of God. He's the one that creates creatures. This is a creature, but the serpent deceived me and I ate. I guess I did, God, but it wasn't really my fault. The devil made me do it, (laughs) right? That never works. In B, verses 14 through 19, God gives the consequences. Notice that God doesn't interview the serpent. As he gives, as he gives the consequences, he commences and, with the serpent. The serpent, verses 14 through 15, the serpent was used by Satan, so the serpent does have consequences. And the first is a curse. That's the first time we see the word curse in the Scriptures. Before this, it was blessing. It was blessing. God blessed. God blessed. And he gave. And he provided. Now, there is a curse. And the curse means, the word for curse means disaster or judgment or sickness or hardship. It's a pronouncement of hurt and detriment and damage and death. It's a terrible word because it replaces the blessings that God had given. Out of all the animals, you are cursed. He says you're eating dust. That doesn't mean like that's its food. Like the Bible's scientifically inaccurate. Serpents don't eat dust, but the meaning is you're licking up dust. It's a humility. You're humbled before everything else. Every time you see a snake, every time you see a serpent, you are to be reminded now of God's humbling of creation because of our sin. Verse 15 is our hope at this point. The serpent will live and the woman will live because both of you are going to have offspring. Her offspring will be humanity and all human beings from now on, but she will die because it will be one of her offspring that will bruise your head, serpent. You will continue and and your offspring will will happen. You will continue, the one who's behind the serpent. That's what we mean. Serpents don't live forever, right? 
You will continue, she will die, but one of her offspring will come and bruise your head. Satan's offspring, what is that? Well, those are the people who follow him rather than God. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. Both Satan and those who follow him will be judged and punished at the end. Yet there will be one offspring from the woman who will bruise or crush the serpent's head. Even while Satan bruises or crushes that offspring's heel. As Jesus died, Satan was part of his suffering and his humiliation. He did everything he could to try to bring Jesus down. But Jesus was victorious when he died and he rose from the grave. And we now today are waiting for when he will return and crush the head of that serpent and Satan. God changes now to the woman. God never changes. He turns. <laughs> turns to the woman now. In verse 16, there are two parts. Pain is multiplied in childbearing. Woman will be the main part of obeying God's command to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. But it will be increased pain now. The word pain does not only mean physical. It includes emotional pain, postpartum depression, many other things that can happen. For, for a woman who's given birth, those things are included. That is part of the result of sin. The other part for the woman is that her desire, again, that word, that lust, the covet, the, the desire will be against your husband. You're going to want to run things, but he will rule over you. You'll want control. You, you'll, you'll desire it. I've got to have it. I don't just want it, but I will get it, whatever it costs, whatever it takes but it will be denied. What does that mean? Well, it means everything that we see today between a man and a woman when they're not getting along, when they're fighting, when they're arguing, when, they, when they're not loving one another, when, when he's not caring for her, when she's not submitting, when they're both not submitting to the Lord. It means everything that we see in the world today, man treating woman lesser and lower, man not treating women correctly, women not treating men correctly. Part of the consequence of sin is that we can't get along now the way that we were meant to. Then number three, verses 17 and 19, God turns to the man. And he specifically calls out man's conscious decision to obey his wife rather than God. I commanded you, but you listened to her instead. Because you ate your way, the ground that you were going to be able to eat from is now cursed. Rather than bringing forth blessing, Rather than bringing forth all the food that you could ever need, and, the, and, the, and it still does, praise God that he didn't take away all of it. But now it also brings forth naturally thorns and thistles and poisonous plants and sticker plants and dangerous plants and everything else. And if you want to eat, you're going to have to eat the plants of the field, the plants that need your work, the plants that need a lot of hard work, immense work that brings pain and sweat every day for the rest of your life until you die, and you will die. You're not God, man. You have not become like God. You are dust. You will return to dust. When work is hard, remember that that is the result of sin. Work is not the result of sin. But the hard work, the reason it's so hard is because of sin. So the effects from the ground up are real. Man and woman, you have messed up everything from the ground up. God didn't need to spell out everything that happened. He said, the ground is messed up, and you that came out of the ground are messed up. <laughs> from the bottom to the top, every part, what was supposed to be blessing, what was supposed to be life and goodness, is now sin and death. It's replaced by curses. It's not our environment that pushes us to sin. Our environment can push us to sin, but our, our environment does not control us to sin. It's not our DNA that controls us and, and that we have an out. Well, my DNA says I'm predisposed to this. It's not, it, it's not that their parents failed them, right? The man and the woman didn't have parents to fail them and, and to mess them up so that now all they do is sin. Their predisposition wasn't a factor. There was no trauma on Adam and Eve when sin came into the world. Yet sin came Anyway, because it started with those temptations and, and being lured away. The sin came in and ruined the human race. First Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom me, I, am the foremost. Our application to take from here is to trust God and His Word. Trust 
God. You have to trust God before you're going to listen to him, before you're going to obey his commandments. You don't, you're not going to care what he says if you don't trust him. You're not even going to want to obey. Do you find his commandments boring? Do you find them irrelevant or limiting, holding you back? Do you find God's word disappointing? You've got this same heart problem. And every one of us thinks those things of God's word at times because of the sin within us. But instead, trust him. Trust his word. The next part is not, does not have a blink because it's too important for us to, to leave it blank. Repent and believe. If you have never repented of your sins, turned away from your sins, and turned to Christ Jesus and believed in him as God's only son, as God himself, the perfect one who lived and who died, who took my sins and died for me and for you when you believe in him, and then he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death. That's where you need to start, to repent of your sins and believe in him. Just confess, be honest, he already knows. He knows every part, every thought, every feeling. He already knows. Just be honest with him. Confess it. Turn away from it and believe. The next blank in your notes in application is to watch. Watch for temptation. Watch for sin. Watch for these ways of being pulled away, of being drawn away, of being enticed and lured. And watch for your Savior. The next blank is to hope. Hope in Jesus, hope in resurrection of, of Christ, and hope in your own resurrection from this place and from death. If you, if you die before he returns, hope in restoration and in his full glory. Hope does not disappoint. This kind of hope doesn't. You may be sitting here wondering, well, you know, how come, how come so often our application is, is similar? How come our applications so often are not a list of do's and don'ts? Do this thing this week. Do, the, do these two things this week. How come we don't have that much in our application? Because our application is not do this, make yourself better, be a better person. Our, our application is repent, believe, love the Lord God, obey Him because you love Him. Don't start trying to obey Him. Change your heart and your mind. This is why. This is why our applications look kind of strange sometimes. You know, it's not the one thing this week because, again, that's where that legalism comes in, right? Give me the one thing I need to do this week. Well, what about everything else God said to do this week? What about everything else that he told us about who he is and loving him with everything we've got? And I'm not putting that down. Sometimes there's a, there's a time and a place for remember this this week or do these things this week. Those, that's okay. But most of the time our, our, our application looks like this because this is where we need to be considering first our heart and our mind. The outside, the outside will follow. The sin for, for the man and the woman, the sin for Adam and Eve just, wasn't just eating a piece of fruit. It was everything that led up to that disobedience with the disobedience happening within that came out. That's why it led to sin. That's why it led to rebellion. That's why it spreads to all of us because eating fruit is, is a good thing. <laughs> That's what God told us. But doing the one thing was brought on by so much more. Father, we thank you, God, that even though we, in Adam and Eve, we have sinned with them, God, we sin today ourselves. Lord, when we woke up this morning, we didn't love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. When we woke up this morning, God, maybe, maybe we were a little irritable or grumpy or maybe sore from the work of yesterday or this week. Maybe we were distracted and, and we didn't love others as ourselves as you've called us to. And God, when we don't do those two, loving you and loving others, Father, those, that's the fulfillment of your law. Of all of your commandments is love. And God, we break those commandments every day. Father, we ask, we plead, we beg for your forgiveness. Because God, there's nothing in us that says we're worthy of that. There's nothing that we've deserved that would make us so that, that you would be forced into or being talked into forgiving us. God, you forgive us when we ask because you've promised to. Because of your nature as the good, the gracious, the merciful God. You are abounding in steadfast love. Father, we, we praise you for that. We lift up your name. God, we can never say thank you enough. We can never say the right words and, and never express 
what that means. But God, when we see how good you are, we see all of your goodness and your provision, the way that you've blessed. And then, God, when we see how much we've sinned, God, we can say that your grace is amazing. We can feel that your grace is amazing. Father, we can live in the light of your amazing, amazing grace. Father, I pray that none of us would take that for granted. Lord, that we would begin by repenting of our sins and believing in Christ Jesus. Lord, that you would work in our hearts, cause us to come to that place where we do those things, Lord. Where we, we, we lay aside ourselves. We, we push aside the world and, Father, we give it all for Jesus because he gave his life for us. Father, we can't purchase our salvation you give it freely to us. We praise you for that. Father, I pray that we would live in light of that every day. God, that we would be motivated, that we would be loving enough to share that message with those people around us. That this would be real to us because you are real to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. We praise you for our Savior in his name. Amen.